Hello, and welcome to the December episode of the Investor's Guide to China. I'm Catherine Young, Investment Director at Fidelity International. And I'm Marty Dropkin, Head of Equities Asia Pacific. In today's episode, we'll be looking into the critical role of transition materials. So minerals and elements such as lithium, cobalt and nickel, essential to developing and deploying clean energy technologies. Indeed, Catherine, demand for these materials around the world continues to grow. So securing a reliable supply of them is a priority for countries trying to get to net zero. China has many of them in abundance. Plus, it dominates their production and processing. All this, therefore, makes China indispensable to a successful and sustainable transition. So what can investors do to share in this boom and prepare their portfolios for a greener future? For our first guest today, I'd like to introduce James Richards. James is an analyst and portfolio manager based in London, and he has an extensive background in commodities. Hi, James. Hi, Marty. One thing I'm wondering is how rapid is the rise in demand for these metals and materials? I mean, the, the challenge is enormous. I think it was best summed up by a, a mining CEO who, who came into our offices a while ago, and she said to me, James, we, ha- we have 10 to 15 years to replace 200 years worth of thermal technology. We're not going to be able to make compromises. And each of the new technologies that we use to replace the existing technologies, a lot of them are much more commodity-intensive than the ones we use now. And so the scale of the increased demand for for commodities and also the range of commodities impacted are are, are breathtaking. So so something must have changed recently because we weren't even talking about this dynamic until a few years ago. What is that? (laughs) It's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? We've been on this path for five, 10 years now, but the pace has picked up significantly. And I can only really attribute that to the the urgency of of, of getting this done and, and, and the increasingly short period of time in which we have to do that. And the other question that really jumps to mind, James, is, you know, we talk about batteries a lot. I guess, is that the main use or are there other sources of demand for these metals? It's so much wider than that. You know, batteries into electric vehicles are obviously an important part as we take our cars off the road and replace them with electric vehicles. But, you know, another big slice and arguably the slice is actually happening faster is the electrification of our of our global energy system, the rollout of renewables, wind, solar, uh, to replace coal and gas, and you know that we, you're particularly seeing that in China, where there's been extraordinary rollout this year. Electrifications and and all the implications of that are as important, if not more so, than than the rollout of battery electric vehicles. James, you mentioned China. You've highlighted the challenges, the pace of change. So. What sort of role does China as a country play in supplying the rest of the world with these materials? I mean, it plays a crucial role, and that spreads on the processing side, where China has been dominant for for some time. Um, You know, they have massive market share in in the processing of of things like lithium and, uh, and rare earths. But increasingly, in a world where Western companies have pulled back capital expenditure, um, because shareholders were concerned about capital returns and and the returns on that capex, Chinese companies have increasingly, you know, been the, the big players in growth in in copper in, in particular, and so you, you see many of the world's large copper projects are are sponsored and, and and operated by the Chinese, and so in things like nickel in Indonesia, in lithium, you know, the the Chinese have kind of got it I think earlier than the rest of the world, and, and the rest of the world are now playing catch up. 
Therefore, what is China's impact on global pricing when it comes to commodities? I mean, it, it's an enormously important part both of, of demand and, and in some commodities for supply as well. And I think we're seeing that impact um, this year across a, a variety of fronts. In lithium, you know, having been in acute shortage at the beginning of the year, we're now in oversupply and um, and, and, you know, I think Chinese companies have, have played an important part on bringing on the supply that, that means that prices have come down very, very significantly during the course of the year. And, and, and we're seeing the same kind of dynamics in, in nickel where um, Chinese companies have bought on new supply. And, and at the moment, the market is looking for a floor. Earlier today, I had a chance to catch up with Karen Zhou, one of Fidelity International's Hong Kong-based analysts and portfolio managers covering the metals and mining sector. She recently traveled to mainland China to meet and talk with some of the domestic mining companies that specialize in extracting transition materials. Here's what she had to say about the supply picture there. Hi, Karen. So tell me about your trip to China. Where did you go and, and what did you do? Yeah, so I went to Yunnan province in the south part of China uh, to visit aluminium companies. And I also went to Sichuan Chengdu to meet with uh, lithium carbonate makers. And so if you look at the China's commodity scenes, there is a lot of uh, things going on in the transition materials, especially with very positive outlook in the future with the Chinese EV penetration. Um, so um, it's very important for me to go on the ground and to do field research to see uh, and closely monitor what these companies are doing. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a big advantage we have sitting in, in China. From a big picture standpoint, what, what trends did you pick up around the commodities sectors? So I think in the commodity sectors, if you think about China, it's very, very important on both supply and demand side. Uh, if you think about lithium, uh, first of all, China has very high EV penetration growth, so that uh, actually gives a lot of uh, demand for lithium in the long term. And also for aluminium, because it's a very important component to make autos, and especially EVs now, they are becoming lighter. So they are also very promising in the long term in terms of the demand uh, growth uh, for this specific material. Okay, so some good long-term opportunities there, but I know we've talked in the past about potential supply disruption. What does that mean for the sector? Yeah, I think that's a definitely an important point. And specifically, I would like to touch upon aluminium because uh, this is a very high electricity-intensive sector and with China's very uh, a focused um, initiative on carbon neutrality. Chinese government in the past has encouraged many of these top aluminum makers to move to places where there are renewable energies. So many companies moved to Yunnan in the past where there was a lot of hydropower. However, in Yunnan, there is wet season and dry season. So in every dry season, normally in the winter, there won't be enough hydropower uh, to, to basically uh, service all these aluminum companies that move there. So there has been a lot of supply disruptions in the winter, and that has basically driven up uh, the, the aluminum prices in the near term uh, every, every time where there is such like electricity shortage. Okay, well, may maybe that uh, wet and dry season is the reason Yunnan has such good pu'er tea. I don't know. Um, 
How about supply outside of China? I know a lot of Chinese companies are starting to look overseas to mine. Did that come up in your conversations with management teams while you were there? Yes, absolutely. If you look at the history of this lithium, this commodity in China, in the past few years, there was a period where lithium price has risen very sharply, mainly because of very fast EV penetration and because of the demand increase, there wasn't enough lithium resources developed in China to to meet the demand. So many Chinese companies along the lithium supply chain started to look overseas and specifically in Africa in the past few years. So the two companies that visited in Sichuan, the lithium carbon makers, they went to Zimbabwe in Africa to develop lithium mines themselves. And uh, they were able to develop greenfield projects within a year. That was shockingly fast and surprised many uh, investors in the market. So we definitely need to closely monitor how this rapid ramp of supply will impact the lithium price in the near term. We do see some near-term corrections of lithium price from previous highs. However, uh, I think the from a long-term perspective, it's still quite promising with continued EV growth and penetration despite some near-term challenges. Well, th- thanks a lot, Karen. So some near-term volatility, but long-term trends remain, remain intact. Yeah, you're spot on. Karen's reiterating James's earlier point about just how vast China's impact is really in this space, isn't she? Yeah, she really is, and and I think it's it's. She talked about Yunnan, but it, it obviously is is you know countrywide, and she even talked about globally how the impact from China is spreading in the commodity space. Catherine. So we still have James actually with us, and I'd also like to introduce Monica Lee. So she is our Shanghai-based director of research for equities, based in China. Delighted to have her in the studio with me today. Hi, Monica. Hi, Catherine. It's my pleasure to be here. Hi, Monica. Good to see you. Can you give us a sense of how much demand there is for transition materials in China? Yeah, sure. I think the biggest context here is China's dual carbon goals, that is peak carbon emission by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2060. This, I think, is the biggest driver for China's transition towards a more sustainable and low-carbon economy. And when you track the action, China is actually ahead of its own target. Uh, For example, China committed to have uh, 1,200 gigawatts of solar and wind uh, capacity installed by 2030. And by this year, we'll already have around 1,000 gigawatts. So at this run rate, we will hit the 2030 targets by 2024. Yeah. So obviously, as China builds its way towards a more sustainable and low carbon economy, there will be a lot of demand for transition materials and like copper and lithium. Sitting in London, though, James, you know, Monica's explained the targets. She's uh, mentioned some of the achievements. Are they realistic in your view? I mean, they're very challenging. But, um, you know, if you think about the dominance of, of coal in, in China's power system currently, uh, if you think about the amount of emissions coming from, you know, what is a very large steel industry, um, aluminium as well, there's no doubt that they are challenging. But I think the structure of the Chinese economy uh, is actually quite helpful in terms of getting this task done. And the way that, you know, we've we've sort of mobilized demand this year kind of demonstrates that once a goal is set, then everybody does t- tend to pull towards it. 
One thing I think is worth mentioning is uh, the state-owned companies do play a very big role in the whole transition of the economy. Um, so if you look at the, the power companies, they are pretty dominant in the power system to start with. And they also have much better access to funding with borrowing costs as low as 2 to 3%. So this will better help them to push towards the clean energy more aggressively. And also, because they have better uh, access to funding, they are consolidating the market uh, continuously because um, they have stronger balance sheet to navigate through the ups and downs. And also, this will help them towards the transition of the overall economy. Monica, James mentioned some of the uses of, of the metals uh, that we discussed earlier. I guess let's make it personal. Has your life changed at all? Are there any, or are there any applications that you find in day-to-day? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think one thing always amazes me is how quickly that electric vehicles has gained traction in China. So my family has an electric vehicle, and uh, when you are on the street, you can notice that there were more and more green plates, which means more and more electric vehicles. And I think people's perception just changed tremendously uh, towards EVs uh, over the past three years. And according to analyst tracker, the penetration rate of EVs among the new car sales was 38% in the most recent months. And if you go back just three years ago, it was less than 10%. So the transition is definitely happening fast and furious on the ground. Transition materials are vital to tackling climate change, but digging them up presents another set of environmental and social risks. Our Shanghai-based sustainable investing analyst, Bin Yu Zhao, talks regularly with Chinese mining companies about what they're doing and what more they might still do to mitigate those exact risks. We spoke the other day and she was calling from what sounds like a pretty extraordinary place. Hi, Binyu, thank you so much for joining. Now, the idea of asking you to go down an actual mine was somewhat complicated. But tell us where you currently are. I'm currently now um, 30 miles away from downtown Shanghai in a place where used to be a massive, abandoned, I would say 80 meter deep quarry pit 17 years ago, but now being transformed into a luxury hotel filled with water and runs with a lot of surrounding granaries as far as I can see. It's really spectacular to witness such remarkable transformation, especially after seeing online what this place used to be look like in the past. I also had a look at it online. It looks amazing. Now, you were telling me before that ESG investors have a bit of a sort of love-hate relationship when it comes to Chinese mining companies. There are different environmental and social risks involved because the extractive process naturally transforms landscapes via the use of a lot of heavy machine and labor. Right? And for example, this quarry the hotel sits in, the excavation process probably removed some amount of biodiversity, greenery, you know, incurred some environmental pollutions, and if explosives were used and mismanaged, which in turn could then pollute nearby water resources. And also, I would say, a lot of Chinese mining majors nowadays, they do have overseas operations, which again could expose themselves and investors to high E, S, and G risks abroad. And we will certainly want to know whether workers were well protected during operations and compensated for fairly and equally. So how effectively can these Chinese mining operators manage their overseas social license to operate while also actively and positively contributing towards local economic, social and environment development has always been our key concern and focus. 
So therefore, what's on the flip side do they like about these companies? Actually, in, in China and maybe broadly speaking, APAC is a critical participant of the green transition. Basically, the world, the entire world, is relying on the net zero materials produced out of this region, right? Like APAC, including China, is the uh, main producer in the moment for around 20 plus critical materials and also holds the majority of reserves for 10 plus of them. And these materials have presented great growth in demand and are really vital to develop diversified net zero technologies such as renewables like wind and solar, um, electric vehicles, batteries, etc. And all of us here probably we are already using um, or relying on minerals and other transition materials without even aware of it. So what would you say international investors can do to continue to support this transformation? And would you argue that Chinese companies are receptive to this engagement? I think it's quite evident that companies are becoming more receptive towards engagement and getting used to our engagement format and also make good use of this opportunity to actually learn from us, learn from investors on global ESG trends, peer practices and their ESG gaps, etc making it a really interactive process versus what one may think of like a one-way you know, inspection type of meeting. For example, I think recently a major um, Chinese miner solicited our support to get connected with an international mining association during engagement. And we helped them with that. Hopefully they can learn more directly from their global peers. So Binyu, the notion that Chinese mining companies aren't making any progress is therefore very much perception versus reality. Yes, exactly. I think this is largely because um, some miners, right, they don't really know what to disclose on, even if they've already been doing great things with their, you know, um, operations, with their employees. That's why engagement is really important for us to find out exactly what's happening on the ground. Is this because they don't really know what to disclose on, what to, how to sell their stories, etc. Binyu, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Have a really lovely day and, and stay warm over in Shanghai. Thank you very much, Catherine. You know, Catherine, Ben, you at this quarry turned into a hotel. I think it, it sounds really cool. Maybe we should have our next offsite there. <laughs> I'm keen if you are. It'd be fascinating to see actually the progress. I don't know, James, what is your view here? I mean, I, I speak to a variety of Chinese corporates and also, you know, their joint venture partners internationally. And I agree with, with everything that Binyu says. You know, you are seeing a willingness to learn and to improve amongst Chinese corporates. It means they are, you know, they are fast catching up with, with international peers. It, it's been very impressive and they are very receptive. I'm, I'm having a call today with a sustainability team of a large Chinese miner. Three, four years ago, that, that just wouldn't have happened. James, it's so interesting to see how much progress some of the Chinese companies have made in their focus on sustainability. But I guess one of the things we hear a lot about from investors is the focus on markets and that there has been a bit of variance in the performance of companies focused on renewables. I guess, Monica, to you, what do you make of that? Fundamentally, Chinese companies have definitely benefited from this low-carbon transition. If you look at renewables like solar and wind, they enjoyed this massive upcycle since 2019. Uh, and if you look at the electric vehicle industries, they truly took off uh, three years ago. 
However, because the main pictures look great, uh, we are seeing new entrants being attracted into those areas and competition intensified very quickly, which drove down profitability um, as well as pricing. And at the same time, demand also goes through cycles. So naturally, the, the high growth area will change and high growth will moderate, uh, which is exactly what we're seeing in the renewables industry and the EV industry. So in a nutshell, it's a natural reflection of industry cyclicality as well as uh, market sentiment swings. But I think it's definitely not the end of the low carbon transition place. Where optimism has certainly faded over this year and last year has in fact been the Chinese property sector. And James, when you think about it, we saw a boom in this segment about 20 years ago, which in turn drove the last commodity super cycle. So now you're seeing this downturn and decline in the country's housing market. How does this actually impact transition materials? Well, there's, there's no sort of one size fits all answer to that in that, you know, for commodities like copper and aluminium that there is a property component and actually ironically you know both commodities have benefited this year from from very strong completion cycles because um, housing completions have, have held up very well whereas obviously starts and sales have have weakened but for other commodities you know that are, that are relevant to transition like lithium for instance there's very little impact from property or direct impact anyway so, Monica, we, we heard Karen from Yunnan, we heard Bin Yu from Shanghai, very different parts of China, quite far apart, but also different topographies, uh, different landscapes. It shows the sheer scale of, of China as a country. I guess what challenges do those differences in geography pose to companies involved in energy transition? Yeah, Marty, as you just mentioned, China is super big and the power sources is also very unevenly distributed. For example, the most of the power resources, especially the renewables, are in the north and the west, which are thousands of miles away from the more developed regions in the east and in the south. So this has created some problems for the grid. That's precisely why China is catching up very hard on grid investment. China will have 11 ultra-high voltage grid lines scheduled to complete by 2024. Five, uh, to alleviate the bottleneck in the power system that comes with the rise of the renewables and also the vast landscape of China. So this will obviously translate into great demand for related materials like copper uh, and aluminium as China continues to build out its power grid. So Monica, what's the time frame on some of this? I think it's a multi-decade uh, build-up period, but the peak period in the near term will be uh, towards the 2025. So this will mean a lot of materials during the 2023 to 2025 period. So the transition is happening right under our nose. James, after listening to Karen, Binyu and Monica, anything surprise you on either the up or the downside? Karen raised a really important point, which, which is the supply side. And, you know, and, we, and we're seeing it particularly in copper this year um, where there are question marks about demand going into, into next year for copper. Um, but we've seen how difficult it is to bring on even existing copper tons. And you know, a, a very large mine in Panama has been, been shut um, recently. We don't know when that's going to reopen. And, and other major miners in the West are reducing copper guidance in a way that the Chinese companies, to be fair, are not. Marty, I've got to say, once again, I'm, I'm kind of in awe just at the size and the role that China plays in this particular topic. I mean, there's not just transitioning from a top-down perspective from a policy point of view, but even the companies. And it's just quite mind-boggling, isn't it? And we've just really scratched the surface. 
Yeah, we have. And for a topic that we weren't even talking about, say, five years ago, things are changing so rapidly, I think, at an accelerating pace. And, and you know, Catherine, we will be addressing uh, this exact topic on transition in future podcasts for sure. Definitely. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode, though. So thank you to our guests, James Richards and Monica Lee, and to our other contributors, Karen Show and Bin Yu Zhao. And thank you for listening. If you want to read more of what's been covered today, please go to your local Fidelity website or fidelityinternational.com. The producers were Rory Fong and Noah Sin, with production support from Tommy Sue, Keith Chen, and Adam Sheldrake. The editor is Richard Edgar. Until next time, from all of us here at Fidelity, goodbye. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.